0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. Carl Truman. He's professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary, also pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Truman, it's an honor to have you on with us today.
1: It's great to be on with you, Dan.
0: You know, you had written an article. I happened to trip across it someplace and you were talking about the beauty of being confessional in our churches, and I'd like to um, peel the layers of the onion of that a little bit today to get us started in talking about this, uh, Carl. Um, sometimes I hear a catchphrase, it appears to be in some church fellowships, where they say, no creed but Christ, no law but love. Um, and I looked up online, and I, I found out there was another one that goes a step further. It says, no creed but Christ, no law but love, no book but the Bible. And yet another, we have no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no name but the name Christian. And, you know, I, I imagine there's other variations. And I I don't doubt the intent of these. I, I think they're probably good. The question is, are they sufficient? And is something more needed? So uh, I'll pose that as the initial question to get us started to talk about the confessions and creeds of the church?
1: Yeah, it's a good uh, question. I think the first thing one would want to do when faced with statements like that is certainly, as you have done, acknowledge the good intention behind them. The, uh, the statements are, in, are designed to point to the Bible as the unique and supreme authority, to the importance of love in the Christian life and to the supremacy of Christ. Question, of course, becomes well, what does that mean on the ground? Nobody ultimately just believes the Bible. everybody believes that the Bible means something, and what they think the Bible means is, in a sense, their creed or confession. So the division, if you like, between between Christians on confessions is not between those who, who have no creed but the Bible and those who have a creed in addition to the Bible. It's those who have a creed that they're prepared to write down and allow others to look at it and examine it in light of the Bible to see if it makes sense of the Bible's teaching. If you have no creed but the Bible, if, that's your, if that is your creed, if you like, what you're essentially saying is, I believe the Bible means something, but I'm not going to write it down and tell you about it so that you can't critique it in the light of Scripture. So ironically, I think that the statement, no creed but the Bible, Though well intentioned, ultimately undoes that which is intended to protect, which is the authority of Scripture.
0: Yeah, some questions come up that sound like simple questions, but are not sufficiently addressed by by these simple statements. Also, such as, who is Christ? You know, no creed, but Christ. But but who is he? Um, yeah. And also, maybe, what does an outworking of love really look like? Or or this one, I came across this in my early Christian life, the areas of conscience. Some fellowships will, will bind the conscience of the child of God with do's and don'ts, when in fact God has left it free. Um, do creeds and confessions help in these areas?
1: Yes, I, I think they do. As the first, you know, who is Christ? When you think about the statements, I have no, you know, I simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a whole heap of different religions that could affirm that statement. Uh, If you have Mormon friends, for example, and ask them if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll almost certainly answer in the affirmative. But if you're a Reformed Christian or an Evangelical Christian, quite probably you believe something very different to what your Mormon friends believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the term Christ needs to be fleshed out, and I would say needs to be fleshed out confessionally with documents that are publicly accessible, publicly accessible uh, via Scripture. Same applies to love, perhaps even more uh, today than at any point in history. Love has been... Evacuated of its content and reduced to almost a virtual sentiment. What is love? Love is not getting in somebody else's way. Love is affirming somebody else in whatever they say or think or do, providing it doesn't harm other people. That's a very vacuous and empty understanding of love. Uh, Bible, of course, clearly. Frames love in terms of the love of God for his people, the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, it gives love a, a content, an ethical content that again is, needs to be expressed by the church in, in quite clear ways and in what well, I would say publicly accessible documents such as creeds and confessions. On the third point of binding the conscience, the, the great thing about creeds and confessions, uh, well, uh, let me put it in a sort of a, a negative way. First, the one thing people often fear about creeds and confessions is that they can be used by people to bully, cajole, restrict, confine others. They're a kind of imposition on the church that allows the eldership a degree of control they should not have. I would actually argue the opposite. I think the great thing about being part of a confessional church is it's very clearly written down what the power, the ministerial power of the church is. So, for example, if somebody turns up to my church next Sunday wearing a canary yellow suit, a red tie and a blue shirt, I might strongly object to their fashion taste, but there's nothing in the church documents that allows me to say to them, you can't do that. My power is restricted. I only have ministerial power as far as it is explicitly stated in the confessions. If that person turns up, however, very acceptably dressed, and after the church service starts to go around my congregation denying the virgin birth, or denying the resurrection, or denying the deity of Christ, then I as an elder have, a, have power to deal with them, if you like, because my church is committed, publicly committed, to upholding The Virgin Birth publicly committed to upholding the deity of Christ. How do you know that? Because it's stated in the confession that lies at the heart of my church's life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That that's very helpful. My own personal experience. I've been in three other church groups in my life, and the other three were non-confessional. And um, just to affirm them, however, it was not all bad. I mean, there were folks there who loved the Lord and lived for Him and got involved in missions. um, it slowly becomes problematic, however, that in each of these churches are these kind of unwritten assumptions, and and they're important ones, as it turns out. It's It's almost like a kind of deeper knowledge, if you will, that was reserved for those who got more intimately involved in the church and in the worst-case description, it becomes almost like a secret club mentality, mm. and so eventually you understand the lay of the land, but it takes years, and um, when I got into a confessional church, it was like a like a burden is lifted. There's nothing to hide. It's a wonderful thing.
1: Yes. So when, when we bring people into membership at Cornerstone, we typically give them a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms which were the documents produced at the Westminster Assembly in the 16 Forties and that remain the the standard confessional documents for Presbyterians around the world. And we don't expect everybody coming into membership to to believe or to understand every line in the confession and the catechisms. But what we sort of say to them is, this is where what we want you to grow into. This is what this church as a whole believes, and this is our ambition for you as an individual Christian believer. That you will come to affirm everything in these documents. You will come to love. These documents as a wonderful, concise, precise statement of your faith and of the Christian faith of brothers and sisters around the world. So we, again, I I think what you're pointing to in your background is, is true. And I also think it reflects something that, that is good in that those churches do have an ambition beyond a mere profession of faith for Christians as they grow in their belief. What they've missed is, is the need to write that down so that right from the, the get-go, right at the start of discipleship, if you like, you're able to present people with the, the road map of the way ahead.
0: Yeah, um, when we write things down, when the church does that, um, hopefully they dip into the wisdom of the centuries and even the millennia. um, Where does that come into play? I assume it does.
1: Oh, I think that's extremely important. Um, It's very clear when you read Scripture that there is uh, an ongoing tradition within Scripture. Now, often as Protestants, we don't like the language of tradition because it sounds something separate to Scripture. It sounds Roman Catholic. What I mean by that is that which is handed on from generation to generation. You see it in the Old Testament with the uh, Exodus 12 when Moses is giving the children of Israel instructions for celebrating the Passover and he says at some point in that chapter you know sooner or later a generation of children will come along who, who they didn't actually live through the Exodus they don't remember what the Passover is about so you need to tell them you need to tell them the story mm. you need to pass on the tradition if you like of the Passover and what the church is doing week by week sunday by sunday is is passing on the tradition of the gospel, the tradition of Christian teaching week by week, generation to generation. And that means that historic documents are very important. The, is the, if, if I wrote the Westminster Confession today, would I write it in exactly the same way as they wrote it in the 17th century? No, not at all. I'd use different words. <laughs> so There'd be slightly different phrases. But by using that document, I'm affirming a commonality of faith with my brothers and sisters, not only across the world today who affirm the Westminster Standards, but with those who've done that through the centuries. And of course, the Westminster Standards themselves look back to earlier generation of Christians. They build on earlier documents, um, the Irish Articles from the early uh, 17th century, going way, way back to the creeds of the early church. They're all feeding into the Westminster Standards. So by affirming the Westminster Confession, I put myself in... A line of Christians that really goes right the way back to the the early church, and I think that 's a a powerful and a beautiful thing thing to do
0: um, one of the things that 's kind of um, been a letdown for me personally i hope it 's okay to say this um, is concerning uh, baptism. Um, some pastors insist on rebaptizing refusing to accept the baptism of the person coming into his group. And they treat that person as if their Christian baptism, which was done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of the Trinity, as uh, illegitimate. It wasn't done quite right, or it was done too early. And this is particularly troublesome to me. I would hope that our Christian brothers would grow in a Catholic spirit, that is with a small c, and in this particular point, recognize the legitimate baptisms of other groups as they accept new members.
1: Yes, I I would agree. I think um, there's sometimes uh, debates in churches about Roman Catholic baptism and Presbyterian history is somewhat divided on that. I think my own denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we actually leave the decision on that to the individual sessions. I don't think as a church we've made a a clear decision at the top on that one. But my instincts are always to err on, on the Small C, as you put it, Catholic side of things, uh, to be charitable and to accept the the sacramental action of of other brothers and sisters in other denominations.
0: Yeah, it seems right. Um, there's something else that I noticed over the years as I got older, and I'm old now. <laughs> <laughs> um, on a, on important matters, there sometimes is an unspoken creed or confession. Uh, the folks that want to say no creed but Christ, no law but love, let's say, yeah, um, uh, no name but the Christian name, um, really, they have kind of an unspoken creed or confession, but you don't find out about that until later on.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that takes us back, I think, to the the first point of our discussion, that there is no such thing as a creedless Christian. The difference is whether you you write your creed down and publicly acknowledge it, or whether you keep it hidden. And – the great thing about a church which has a, an upfront statement of faith or confession is that you know what the church stands for and you know what's important. And therefore, you can hold the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the other members publicly to account by those public documents. If you think about an analogy with the, the United States, for example, if, if the laws weren't written down, the government could, could ride roughshod over everybody. It's only because in democratic societies, laws are written down that we're actually able to hold rulers accountable, that we're actually able to understand what the nation's all about. And I I think the church is analogous uh, to that. Yeah. And
0: today we're talking with Dr. Carl Truman. He is the Paul Woolley Chair of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he's also pastor. Of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. I was looking up online a little bit written by Piper. I don't read him often, but um, I thought this was interesting. He said, The alternative that is to be in confessional is to obscure those disagreements under a cloud of vagueness. And the effect of that so called unity is that it constantly depends on keeping clarity of truth at a distance. I thought, ah, yes, that <laughs> that kind of resonates with what I observed in my earlier years as a Christian, that you want to know the truth about certain things, and yet it's kept at a distance. H- have you seen that, too?
1: Yes, I think, and again, baptism would be an obvious issue there. Often in, in Protestant and evangelical circles, there's a great push for expressing ironically expressing church unity through parachurch organizations. There's there's definitely a a disconnect or an issue there. But often what that requires us to do is to say that certain things that are clearly important in Scripture are less than important. Um, I would say that baptism, for example, is one that... The New Testament makes it very clear that baptism is important. Now, Christians, I think, can legitimately disagree on the New Testament teaching on baptism and yet still respect each other as Christian brothers and sisters. What we can't do, though, unfortunately, is found churches on the notion that baptism is a matter indifferent. You have to come down on one side or the other. Uh, so, if that's uh, without having read the whole passage uh, by John Piper, if that's what John Piper's pointing at there, I think I agree with him that one needs clarity on certain key, true issues in order to establish churches, and that requires us to be confessional, and that comes with a cost. That does mean that, for example, uh, I have very good friends who are Baptists, but they're never going to be elders in my church, and I'm never going to be an elder in their church. Uh, sure. But I think it's more important that we acknowledge this point is important, and actually it's, you know, it's maybe an odd way to put it, but it's it's more healthy to disagree on it than yeah. it is to pretend that it doesn't count in the first place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's better just to acknowledge that. This is what I believe, that's what you believe and by God's grace we love each other and we're not hiding from each other. This is this is great. Yeah. Some of the things that are basic to our Christian faith um, do need to be documented regarding creation and providence and a biggie is is man's free will and man's deadness and his sins before Christ awakens him. Some of these things are really basic and Yeah. And can only help us uh, love our Lord more. It seems.
1: Yes, I would agree, and uh, it also points to uh, another need, and that is, I think, churches should not shy away from having elaborate confessions of faith. In a lot of non-denominational churches, from my observation, is there's a tendency to have a sort of ten or a twelve-point doctrinal statement, often ten or twelve very, very good points, but of course, the the whole council of God. Consists of a whole lot more points than that. And one of the problems I think you might find as a pastor of a church where, let's say, you have a 10 point doctrinal basis is when the 11th point comes up, you're never going to be able to persuade people it's important because you haven't made it important enough to include in your confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would, one immediate bit of pushback is going to be so you, you're saying that people have to be really good systematic theologians to be a member of a church. I would say absolutely not. Mm. But the standard for membership of the church should not be our ambition for what membership becomes. Mm. Uh, we let people in with with a, a, a plausible, coherent profession of faith, which can be very basic. But we want to educate them in the faith. And the way to do that is by showing them what's important. And you show people what's important by writing it down. Mm. And that also has certain payoffs. When you think of what's happened culturally in the last couple of years, for example, with regard to marriage. Uh, Very few of the evangelical churches I was aware of, maybe 10, 15 years ago, would have had any statement in their confession about what marriage was. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith has a very clear statement on marriage. The Westminster Divines, I don't think in their wildest nightmares, thought we'd ever have gay marriage. but they define marriage very clearly as between a man and a woman, excluding all the other alternatives. Mm -hmm. So, when Obergefell versus Hodges sort of crashed down on us last uh, summer, Presbyterian churches are already in a good position to say, no, we disagree with this, and look, we've always disagreed with it because it's been excluded by our documents for hundreds of years.
0: Yeah, there's some things in Scripture that are non-negotiables, and they constitute sin. They're defined by God that way, and we can't budge from that. Um, Suppose we have a listener today, um, he's in a church, and he's a leader in the church, maybe even the pastor of a church, and realize, you know what, I have neglected defining what we believe, and I would like to dip into some of the historical documents. Um, Should that man be discouraged and you know, throw in the towel and say, "Oh, I got to leave my my group," or should he um, stay with it for a while and see what can can be done?
1: Depends on the group. I, I think you'd have to make uh, uh, something of a personal call on that, depending on your circumstances. I would say the thing to hold in mind is is to go back to a comment I made a, a little while ago, and I talked about you know the church is in the business of passing on the faith from generation to generation. I think every pastor needs to think long term. But what 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 am I doing when I'm pastoring Cornerstone? I'm trying to put the church in a good position for passing on to my successor. Think in those terms. Think every pastor should think in terms of I'm really working for the next generation. I have to care for the people who are under my authority now, but I'm really caring for the next generation. So I would say if, you, if you're if you thinking, yeah, I, I love these confessions, I, I, I really want to start moving my church in that direction, I would say think long-term. Think long-term. Mm. Remember the career of Martin Luther. Martin Luther decided that he needed a vernacular liturgy in 1520. He didn't implement one until 1525 mm. because he wanted to get it right, and he didn't want to move at a speed that disturbed people. So I would say, if you're a pastor in a non-confessional church and you're wanting to make your church confessional... Take your time. Think, this is maybe take 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Maybe it's something that, like Elijah, I will begin, but it'll be my successor, Elisha, who will bring to a close. Start moving things in the right direction. Do a Sunday school class introducing the documents. Start referring to them in sermons. Um, use them in little ways to get people accustomed to hearing about these documents. Talk to your elders. Elders are going to be critical. If the elders are critical in moving the church in the right direction, win your elders over. But I would say, take it slowly, be gentle. Remember, these are good Christian people you're ministering to, and they don't deserve to have their world turned upside down simply because you've suddenly got hold of the idea of a confession.
0: Oh, amen to that.
1: Your task is to bring them gently, and at an appropriate pace to the point where you think the Lord is is calling you. Uh, So I would say, don't be discouraged, but don't underestimate the time it will take. Maybe it will take five years, maybe it'll take ten. Maybe it'll be something that you, I think the American term is sort of, you set up the play, and your successor brings to a successful conclusion. Uh, Think in those terms.
0: You know, I had something come to mind hearing you talk, Dr. Truman, and that is uh, an experience we had in the radio world. Uh, years ago, there was um, a fellow that I think started out confessional and he got pretty full of himself. He went off the rails and became a heretic. Mm. Um, he used to tell his followers, The Bible alone and in its entirety is the Word of God. And it came across as embracing some of the truth of the Reformation, but parsing it or doing a deep dive into it, what he really meant was his interpretation yeah. of the Bible alone. He became unaccountable. He rejected all pastors. He ended up saying that Satan was in all the churches. Yeah, And uh, there's something important about staying with God's people, being accountable. And that's what I like about confessions is that they're honest, they're upfront, and you can digest them. Um, and pick at them if you want. Yeah. And not that we're to have a picky spirit, but we are to be accurate. And yeah. I think of that example of how this man went off the rails and he took many people with him.
1: Yeah. And it, I mean, a good point that sort of comes out of what you just said there. Confessions relativize us, they remind us that we didn't discover the faith, they remind us that we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before. Confession should be a humbling thing. We, in my church yesterday, we said the Nicene Creed during the service. Uh, we don't say it often, maybe once a month or once every two months. But I always think when we say the Nicene Creed, it's, it's, it's a wonderful way of reminding ourselves that we're not alone and also that we're not that important. It really sets us within the context of the history of the Christian church as a whole rather than just the local community in which we find ourselves. Mm,
0: so true. Well, this has been very helpful today. Our guest has been Dr. Carl Truman. He is the Paul Woolley Chair of Church History, Westminster Theological Seminary, and pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Truman, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's been a real pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me on.
0: And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.